Go ahead and be turning to Matthew chapter 12. And while you're turning there, I'm going to pray. God, thank you for this time that we spend together each week. Um, gathering together as your people, encouraging one another, um, building one another up. Hearing from you, uh, singing praises to you, focusing on who you are and what you've done. Uh, I just thank you for this time. I thank you for the, the joy that it puts in me to hear all these voices singing these words, these truths about who you are and, and how amazing you are and the things that you've done for us and the good that you've done for us. And God, I pray that this morning we would be able to reflect on your goodness and your mercy and be so moved uh, by what you have done for us that, that our response, our response time later, later this morning would not just be filled with singing some songs because there are words on a screen, but, but that we would be filled with a genuine sense of joy. We would be genuinely overwhelmed by who you are and that you would, through your Holy Spirit working in the hearts of the people here this morning in CRC, that you would bring so much glory to yourself that we would just be overwhelmed by how good you are and we would just be unable to be contained. That, that joy would just kind of up and explode from within us. God, I just pray that you would work in all of our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to do a pretty good chunk this morning. We're going to get through about 20 verses or so. Um, so I, I, I really enjoy like watching movies and analyzing why things are the way they are. I, I, like, I like listening to guys who make short films talk about why they chose this kind of light to light this scene and why they use this camera lens to get this look because every single piece of the storytelling is so important to them. They have to get it just right. They have a very specific vision for what they're trying to do because all of that, all of these pieces that are taking place to kind of create, craft and create this 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 story have all of these elements that are a part of that story. Every single little piece is an important part of the storytelling process. And if any one of those isn't just so, it's going to change the way the whole story kind of gets perceived by the people who are, who are you know, experiencing the story, being told this story. Um, and that, that, that includes, you know, people, people making the, setting up the lights, that includes the people setting up the cameras, that includes the people doing the makeup, all of those different aspects. But, but for the most part, if, if the people that are portraying the characters in a film or something aren't able to actually sell what that character looks like, how that character feels, what that character experiences, it's not going to feel very believable. And I've heard a bunch of different actors who have played like villains. So like, think of some mean villains in some movies that you like. To play those villains, they have to actually get into the the mindset of what that villain would be thinking in that moment. And in a sense, they have to convince themselves if they're going to accurately portray 
this, this evil, wicked person who's doing all of these horrible things. They have to almost convince themselves that the mindset, the position that that person is coming from is justified. That the villain is actually the good guy. Because if you think through the mindset of a villain, they're doing the things that they're doing because they feel that they are right. Because they feel that these are the things that are good. Because they feel that they are justified in what they're doing and everybody who's fighting against them, they're the bad guys. It's a really interesting idea to think of, try to get into the mindset of somebody who is doing something who is opposed to what God would want. But I kind of want us to think about the perspective of the Pharisees, because from this point, like we've already started seeing interactions with Jesus and the Pharisees in Matthew. But the more we continue to go through Matthew, the more interactions we're going to see between Jesus and the Pharisees. And I want us to get this one idea in our heads, is that in the Pharisees' mind, they're not just trying to pick on Jesus. They're not just trying to be mean. They genuinely felt that they were right, that they were justified, and that what they were doing was to protect what God intended for the people of Israel. And, and because they felt so strongly that they were right, it made them very dangerous, in a sense, to the cause of Christ because they were so set in their ways. They were going to oppose it at all costs because to them, this is the highest calling that we could have. This is the most righteous endeavor that we could take to protect what God has given us to protect. In their minds, the law. And, and over the course of, of hundreds and thousands of years, all of this oral tradition, these, these extra rules and things that they'd kind of slapped on top of the law to protect themselves from ever actually breaking the law. But what they didn't realize is that over time, they got to the point where they were more worshiping the law or worshiping their own ability to protect the law than they were worshiping the God who gave them the law. And they didn't understand the reasons why the God that they were supposed to be serving gave them the law. They lost sight of why the law was there. They had heard Jesus explain that. All in Matthew chapters 5 and 6, uh, he's explaining, here's why God gave you this law, that I might come and fulfill it. Because the law is going to reveal that, that this is a standard too high for you to attain on your own. You can't earn this. And that's why I'm here. I'm here to complete the law. I'm here to complete your salvation. But because the Pharisees had so lost sight of why the law was there, and they were so unwilling to be told anything else, every time that Jesus presented something that, that clashed with their worldview, that clashed with the traditions and the, and, the, and the rules and the things that they had set up, it just made them more and more angry. And they felt that they were righteously angry, just like I was talking about with, with an understanding of villain's mindset. And I want us to understand, these guys were so sure that they were right. They were so positive that everything that they were doing was justified. And that's what made it so dangerous for them to be that strongly set in their ways. So Jesus is going to have an interaction with the Pharisees this morning. We're going to start by reading verses 1 through 13. Um, regarding one of the things that they held in the highest. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, I'll start in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, 
Your disciples are doing what it is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And, you, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there, and he entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So we get two different instances of Jesus performing, performing or endorsing some sort of action on the Sabbath and the Pharisees trying to call him out and say, see, see, this is a law and you're breaking it. You're not justified. You're not the one we're supposed to be following. Everybody, look at this guy. He's doing evil. You should be listening to us, not him. And it's, and it's so important to them that this be kept right, that their, their traditions, their, their way of understanding. And, and again, it's important that we're not talking, we're not going to discern what... what we're not trying to decide whether or not their interpretation. Jesus is going to give us the proper interpretation for what the, the point of the Sabbath is. And we're going to read some of the laws that they're holding on to when, when we're talking about the Sabbath. But what's happening here is the Pharisees started with the wrong premise of what the Sabbath was there for. And because they had a wrong premise, everything that they built on top of that wrong premise, their wrong interpretation of what to do with the verses concerning the Sabbath, that's what's going to set off all of this stuff. They're going to build up this wall to protect a bad interpretation of what Scripture is, a bad showing of what God's intent was. So, where do we get this idea of the Sabbath? Well, it's the fourth commandment that, that Israel was given um, by God in the Ten Commandments. You're, fairly familiar, you're probably fairly familiar with it. It's in there twice. If you were here, actually, last Sunday night, we've been reading through Deuteronomy uh, on Sunday nights, and just this last Sunday night, we got into the Ten Commandments. So we actually just read Deuteronomy chapter 5 uh, last week. Um, so we're given it in two different places, in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. And what's interesting about both of these tellings of the Ten Commandments, when he gets the idea of the Sabbath, we're given two different reasons in those places why God would institute this day. Uh, in, in, Exodus chapter five, sorry, in Exodus chapter 20, I'm just going to go ahead and turn there real quick. You're more than welcome to keep up with me if you would like. You'll probably get there before I do. In Exodus chapter 20, in verse 8, he says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. And then he gives this reason. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, 
and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I'm just going to go ahead and jump over to Deuteronomy really quick. Deuteronomy chapter 5. We will read that. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. So all that sounds very familiar. Then verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Those are two very different reasons, right? So the first justification for taking a day of rest is because God created everything in six days and after six days, God sat back and he rested. And typically when we think of the Sabbath, that's the version of the telling of keeping the Sabbath holy that we focus on in our mind. That's the one that we remember. That's the one I know I remember. So why in Deuteronomy chapter 5 was Moses also going to say, keep the Sabbath day because God set you free. You were slaves in Egypt and he brought you out. Well, I think there's, a, there's one major correlation between those two things. When God got done creating the heavens and the earth, and it says on the seventh day God rested, he basically sat down and looked back at everything that he'd done and he reflected on the work that he had accomplished, right? And we kept seeing this every day of creation. Each day he'd kind of pause and say, he looked at everything, there was sun, the sun rose, the sun set, and he's like, this is good. I'm really happy with where this is. And on the seventh day, God kind of sits back and just reflects on what he has done. Which sounds very familiar to what Moses is telling Israel to do in Deuteronomy chapter 5. When you get to the Sabbath day, the point of the Sabbath day is to reflect on the goodness of God, to reflect on the grace of God, to reflect on the fact that you were slaves, you had no hope, and God took you out of that. God led you out of that, and he has made you into this nation. So you're to reflect on the goodness of God. You're to reflect on what he has done for you. So when the Pharisees are talking about the Sabbath, they're saying the whole point of the Sabbath is that you don't do any work. That you don't, you don't do anything. You just sit there. you got to make sure. You have to work so hard to make sure that you don't work, in a sense. God is more concerned with the fact that we remember what he has accomplished for us, his goodness, who he is, parts of his character. And to kind of reflect on that and to encourage one another to remember that during our times of rest, then he is concerned with the fact that we are not working. The problem is, and some of you are like this, once you start working on something, that's all that you're going to think about. Like you're going you're gonna to lock in on that thing. I'm not going to lock in. I'm going to get distracted by every single other thing. But for some of us, when you are working, you cannot be stopped. You cannot be deterred. You are focused on that one thing solely. And I think what God is trying to say when he's giving them the Sabbath is, I want you to stop working and just think about how good I am. When do we do that? How often do you actually do that? I mean, even on our Sunday morning when we get together here, 
how much are you stopping working or how much is it I have to make sure that I get I got to get up at this time so I can be ready, so I can get on these clothes, so I can get, get all set, so that I can get to church, so that I can make, oh, I got to make sure I go by Kroger on the way so that I can remember to bring something for lunch because I signed up to bring that one thing for lunch. And we're in such a hurry, we're so busy trying to get here. By the time we get here, our mind's all thinking about all sorts of things and we forget to just kind of pause and rest and think about how good Jesus is. Like, like, like we're really bad resters. A lot of times we're already on to the next thing. We're already thinking about where we have to be after this. We're already thinking about the thing that we have to come back for later today. We're already thinking about whatever it may be. And I'm not saying that that means that we should just clear our calendars and we shouldn't even bother coming here. But I think I think if we if we focus on what Jesus is wanting with the Sabbath, he's wanting us to to kind of just sit back and reflect on his goodness and what he's done. That's a really good place for us to get. That's a really good place for us to be. How often do we just stop and reflect on the goodness of Christ? How often do we just let that thought of what he has done? Like he's talking about Israel being slaves who are being set free, but isn't that exactly what he's done with the rest of us as well? Weren't we all just slaves to sin? And didn't he set us free from the bondage of sin that was keeping us held down? We are Israel in a sense. We are what Israel was representing. And he has done that same thing in the church. Can we not just pause and reflect on his goodness and respond to him in a way that makes sense? Just sitting back and appreciating what it is that he's done for us. And not make the idea of, I'm not supposed to work on this day, the thing to be attained. Because that's what the Pharisees had done. They'd so focused. We can't work. we got to protect ourselves from working. So we're going to make all of these rules that go outside of the law that, that are going to protect us from working. That's not, an, that's not a thing that died off thousands of years ago. That still happens today. I think it's hilarious, but, but in Israel, in tall buildings, they have Sabbath elevators. Have you heard of this? It is an elevator that opens the door and closes on every floor without without skipping floors so that they don't have to walk up and push a button because to push a button enacts an electronical response and that is making something work. So they'll, so, they'll, so they'll wait for the Sabbath elevator to get there so they don't have to do any work. They'll get on the Sabbath elevator and they have to go to the 15th floor and they will wait every single floor just to keep themselves from working. Like this is a thing. This is a real thing. And that is not what I hear when I'm reading Exodus and Deuteronomy, what God is wanting. He's not wanting us to create new ways to keep ourselves from having to to put forth any effort. But he does say don't do any work. And isn't that what what the uh, the Pharisees found Jesus' people doing? Isn't that what Jesus just did? Didn't he just act in some way? Weren't his disciples actually walking along the side of the road like, harvesting food, preparing a meal, and eating it? Isn't that what they're doing? I mean, there are also provisions in the law for those who don't have food as they walk beside a field. Like, like you were, Israel's instructed, when you harvest, don't harvest the edges of your field. Leave some of that at the edges for those who are hungry, for those who are in need, so that they can come by and they can get something to eat. Like, God had made provisions for people who were hungry walking along in just this way. He had made a way for people to be able to eat. Like if you read about it in, in uh, the book of Ruth, 
That's essentially what Ruth was doing. They were coming along behind where all of the leftover grain was, and they were harvesting so they'd have something to eat. And these guys are just kind of calmly, quietly following Jesus, walking along with the Messiah, and they're just kind of picking up something and eating it a little bit along the way. And the Pharisees are saying, oh, they're in sin. This is an awful thing. And what Jesus is saying, and I think this is great, he kind of responds to the Pharisees. The weapon that he uses against the Pharisees is their beloved Old Testament, right? He says, let me give you a couple of examples of some of these guys that you look back to. Let's look at David. David, he was really hungry. And he and his men went into the temple and they ate the bread that the law says they're not allowed to eat. And it was unlawful for them to eat it. He admits it, right? But was, were they immediately destroyed? Did God, did God send down fire from heaven to consume them and wipe them off the face of the earth because he was so offended? No. God said, those guys are hungry. Those guys need something to eat. I'm going to let them eat. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to hinder them. I'm going to show them, what's the word he uses later? I'm going to show them mercy. I des- what is it? He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Same thing with the priests. He's using this example of the priests who, who, are, who are, you know, that's the epitome of like religion and, 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 and works. And you're th- sitting thinking, these guys are, are, are doing exactly what, what the will of God is. They're, they're following the law perfectly. But priests were commanded to make sacrifices on the Sabbath, which was their job. And what Jesus is saying is, weren't these guys, in a sense, guilty of breaking the law as they're offering the sacrifice on your behalf to God? And yet, God doesn't view them as guilty. He's merciful to them. He says, yeah, they're not doing exact, they're not following the law in that sense because they are taking action, because they are, they are making sacrifices, but that's what I've called them to do. And so what Jesus is saying is, it can't be so strict, it, it can't be so strictly do not work despite anything else, because then you, you lose the heart of God. You lose the intent for what God wants from them. He wants them to, to love people, to serve others, just like we see when he heals this guy with the withered hand. Like, like the Pharisees had gone so far as to decide which types of healings would be allowed on a Sabbath. Like, like if they if they viewed it as an emergency, like this person's in really bad shape, they're not going to be able to get on with their life. They might die right now if they're not healed. Sure, we can pray that somebody can heal them. And and they didn't deem this guy with a crippled hand, maybe it was paralyzed, who knows what it was. They didn't understand, they, they didn't understand why Jesus would be willing to heal this guy right now. Like, this isn't an emergency. He's probably lived with this his whole life. There's no reason for you to break the law in order to heal this man. And what Jesus is saying is, I want you to be sacrificially loving and serving to people. Like, like that's part of the, like, like the whole point of the Sabbath was that you're going to reflect back on the mercy and grace of God. That he, that he brings you out, that he saves you from slavery, that he saves you from sin. So to serve somebody else in that way, to get them out of a difficult situation, to prepare them a meal if they're hungry, to to heal them if they have some sort of malady, something like that, that is more reflective of the heart of God than, than, than getting so set in your ways that you resist and you stand back and say, no, we will not do this. 
this, this, the fact that this law says I shouldn't be working right now is far and away more important. And he's saying, that's not my heart. That's not my desire. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I don't want you giving up all of these things and losing what I would intend, what my heart wants. I don't want you to let go of those things only so that you can feel like you have more perfectly listened to the words that I have given you. I love the like sensible, like hypothetical that Jesus lays out when he's talking about healing the guy's hand because they're like, is it lawful to heal this guy? Obviously trying to set him up because they're wanting to say, yeah, you can work on the Sabbath. So, and we see how they kind of respond to that. But I love the response that he gives because he's like, if you had a sheep and it fell in a well, wouldn't you like, like get it out? Like, like this just makes sense. You're not going to just leave your sheep. But the irony is they had, again, set up all of these rules to like, there were times they were like, depending on who it is, even if it's a human being, you cannot lift them out of a well on the Sabbath. Like they were concerned with living according to their traditions, living according to their rules, that they devalued other human beings, other image bearers of God. Because they thought, they are not worth my letting go of my interpretation of this law. I am unwilling to love this person in that way. I will leave them in a well. No matter how many times Lassie comes and tells me that Timmy is stuck in the well, I just realized that half of us probably haven't seen Lassie. (laughs) But however many times the Pharisees were like, I know you're telling me Timmy's stuck in the well, but because I love God, I will not come rescue Timmy from that well. I'm sorry, Lassie. Go find somebody who doesn't love God as much as me. That is the Pharisee mentality. And they were so set in that. They were so ready to fight for that that when Jesus, in in response to their challenge, says, no, I love this guy. I want to serve this guy. I'm going to heal this guy right here in front of you, knowing what your thoughts are, that they go huddle in a corner and say, we got to do something about this guy. we got to get rid of him. He is dangerous. He is terrifying. He's going to tear apart our way of life if more people hear about this. And isn't it just kind of creepy, the fact that they were watching? Like, like, I can just picture, I can just picture Jesus' disciples kind of walking alongside the road, just hanging out with Jesus. And then you've got like six Pharisees in the tall grass on the other side of the path, just kind of peeking through, like, are they going to do something that we don't like? Are they going to do something we like? Like, it's just like he, they took a mid-afternoon walk, and these guys were ready to jump out and pounce on them. This is, how, this is how much they were ready to do something about Jesus. This is how frustrated they were with him. Let's go ahead and read, because Jesus, it says in verse 15, knew exactly what they were planning. He knew exactly what their desire was. He knew that they wanted to be rid of him. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, aware that they were conspiring against him, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. Again, telling them, I'm not ready for you to tell people about me yet. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, 
my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. So Jesus gets away knowing what they're getting ready to do. And, and I don't want us to think that he's running away from possible persecution. We've talked about persecution off and on the last couple of weeks. And I don't want you to think that he's thinking, oh, this is about to get bad. I've got to get out of here. I don't want that. But instead, it's that Jesus knows there's a very specific way that this is supposed to work out. There's this very specific time for my suffering to begin. And we're going to start seeing hints of him implying that to his disciples as we continue through Matthew. But he knows it's not yet time for that part of his ministry. He still has more to do. He still has more to teach. He still has more people to heal, as we see. So Jesus isn't running away. He's not avoiding persecution. He just knows that it's not quite time yet. He knows that he has another purpose at this moment. And just like he has before, he discourages people from telling others about him. And we keep kind of reiterating this idea, but for the, I think the first time, Matthew really emphasizes heavily why it was so important that Jesus not be so made much of publicly at this point from this quote in Isaiah. Um, because in, in this quote, he's talking, about, he's talking about the Messiah. It's from this large section about this suffering servant. If you go back and read it, it's just a beautiful description of who Jesus is and what it was that he would accomplish. But he, he, he kind of looks back and he talks about, I will put my spirit upon him. He's kind of saying, remember, this is the guy who, who God, at his baptism, sent the Holy Spirit upon him and blessed him and said, guys, this is him. This is the one. He's reminding, Matthew's reminding us, he's reminding the readers that Jesus is the one who God was talking about. He is that Messiah. And then it talks about, in, in, here in verse 19 and 20, he will not quarrel or cry aloud. He will not nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. Jesus wasn't here to be this dominant political power at this time. And you've heard us say this, but I love the way that, that Matthew brings in these verses right here. Because he's describing a, a humble, a meek, a quiet Messiah who doesn't come, you know, kind of barging through, knocking things over as he comes so that he can take over and be in charge. Like that idea of, like, he will not injure a bruised reed. A bruised reed he will not break. Like, like he's not just kind of carelessly walking through, you know, knocking things over and, and leaving a mess behind. He's instead coming through quietly saying, I am here to love and to serve you because there's a bigger purpose here until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, all the Gentiles will hope. So he's now saying... There's a more global victory to be won here. It's not just that I'm here to free, to free physical Israel. It's not that I'm just here to overthrow Rome and set myself up as your king for now. That's not my purpose for being here. My hope is that the nations will know who I am, that I'm going to bring salvation to the world for us. That's why Jesus was here. And that's why he didn't come the way that they would have desired. They wanted a king. They wanted another David, right? They wanted somebody who was going to sit on the throne and, and make their lives comfortable. But that just 
wasn't who he is. He came as a suffering servant who was willing to give up heaven, to give up sitting with his Father God in glory. He was willing to let go of all of that so that he could come and save the world, save the nation, save all the peoples of the world. And that's, and that's why at the end of chapter 11 he can say, come take my yoke on you. My burden is light. Like, I'm going to do all of this. I'm going to save you. It's not about how well you obey the law. It's not about how well you avoid work on one day of every week. That's not your hope. That's not your salvation. I am your hope. I am your salvation. I want you to have a heart like mine. I want you to want the things that I want. I want you to love people the way I love people. Don't make it so much about you, because the more you make it about you and what you do, the weight of that is just going to get heavier and heavier and heavier. I can't imagine how miserable it must have been to be a Pharisee, right? Because they were working so, so hard. Even when it was a day when they weren't supposed to. They had to work hard not to work. That took real effort to make sure that they were doing all that they could to earn God's favor. And that wasn't ever going to happen. And that's why Jesus says, just trust me, I am the humble Messiah who's here to serve you. I want you, like me, to humbly serve others. I want you to to love the people that you come across. I want you to, to be willing to let somebody who is hungry come to you. Give them something to eat. Let them pick the grain from your field. Don't sit there and say, hey, that's my grain. Because we all have grain at home. I know this. We all have grain fields. It's a very practical, practical example for all of us. You don't have a grain field? Oh. Well, everybody except Caleb has a grain field. But, but, but the mentality is still the same. The desire to love people, to serve people, to, to, to store up something so that you can bless somebody who is in need of something. To, to be willing to go out of your way to love and serve and take care of somebody who is in need even despite the lack of popular opinion of doing that, even despite the fact that it might anger somebody who doesn't understand what the heart of God is. We need to pray that we would have the heart of God. We need to understand who God is, what he desires, and he's laying it out here. I don't desire sacrifice. It's not about what you do. I desire mercy. I want you to love people the way I love people. And that's how I want us. That's how I want CRC, Christ Reconciled Church. These people who have been reconciled together, brought together by Christ to have his heart. I want us to be not the kind of people who are so set in our ways, so stubbornly locked into our poor interpretations of Scripture that we are unwilling to love people because this is what the Bible says I'm supposed to do. I can't love you right now. I'm busy listening to Jesus. That's not who I want us to be. I want us to be the kind of people who, who, who so know and love who Jesus is that when we step back on the Sabbath, when we take our time to kind of step back and rest, that we just kind of let that idea of how good he is just kind of flow over us and be amazed and overwhelmed, overjoyed by that and then do something with it. Not to just say, oh, that was a great day for me. I've reflected on how good God is. But to recognize, and now there are people that I can go love. Now there is mercy that I can go show. That's the kind of people that I want us to be, and those are the kind of people that Jesus is calling us to be. Let's pray.
God, I thank you for your mercy. God, I thank you that despite all that we are and all that we would do that would be offensive to you, that you show mercy to us, that you you love us and you, you, don't, you don't hold against us how, how annoying it has to be to deal with people like us, how frustrating it has to be to have, have this many sinners all grouped together. So God, I pray that you would, you would take away our misinterpretations of who you are and what you want. I pray that you would... Um, just give us clarity about who you are. Reveal to us who you are. Continue to draw us back to your word where you reveal to us who you are and what you are like. God, just cause us to be overwhelmed by your goodness. And, to, and to th- as we think back about what all you have done for us, that we would just be amazed and overjoyed. And that our worship and the things that we say when we leave this place and the things that we do and the places that we go, all of those things would serve as a reflection of of just that sense of joy that we get from knowing what you have done for us. God, not all of us know that joy. And I pray that maybe this morning, right now, you would open the hearts, open the eyes of somebody to see that joy right now. And so they can start to look back and see how you have been drawing them to yourself all of this time. God, I was, I was praying about it earlier this week. I was talking about it with the elders, and it's like, I am jealous to baptize some more people. I want, to, I want to have people, I want to see people saying, look at what Jesus has done for me. I want to get baptized. I want to, I, want to, I want to tell the world this is what he has done for me, God. I pray that you would, you would give us those opportunities because, because of what you're doing, not because of anything I'm saying, not because of anything we're doing here, that's, that's as a result of our own work, but just because of what you have been doing through the people in this building. God, I just pray that you would, you would work miracles in the lives of the people in this room right now and that we would be so overwhelmed by your goodness and what you have done for us on, our beh- on, on behalf of your glory that, that you've been doing to bring glory to yourself, that, that our response to that would be overwhelmed, in awe, joy, just, just, just excitement about what it is that you have done for us, that we would feel that for real. In Jesus' name, amen.